good to see you this morning. It is so good to see you. Uh, if you're uh, new with us, we're in Ephesians, uh, specifically in chapter three this morning. We're going through a series through the book of Ephesians. Uh, we're gonna be in the letters to the church all year long, looking at these beautiful letters written uh, to instruct, to encourage, to correct the church, understanding that as a church, we place ourselves underneath that microscope to ask God through his word to speak to us, correct us, encourage us, rebuke us, uh, set our feet on the right trajectory. And so, uh, welcome. You're part of that this morning. Uh, we're gonna begin in verse seven in just a moment. Um, as you go ahead and turn there, let me give a few words of introduction that might help uh, understand a few things, not just about today's sermon, but the Bible in general as you read it devotionally. Um, I think it's important for us to understand um, a couple of things about where we are born, not just in time, but culturally speaking on the earth, and how that plays into the way we read the Bible and understand the Bible. And so let me give you just a few examples. If you're not aware of this, we're, we're Westerners here in the United States. And I don't mean the Old West, cowboys and guns. What I mean is we're, we are Westerners in our thinking and in our culture and the way we process information and categorize and organize things. We're very much Westerners. We're linear thinkers. We, we see things on a timeline. Um, and let me, let me share with you why that, how that plays into the way we read the Bible and, uh, and, and then shapes the way we think of God. So a couple examples. One, we're, as Westerners, we're an either-or culture. It's like the light is either off or on. Okay, now that applies to almost everything. It's one of the reasons I think in the 21st century, we have so many theological divisions in the church because we're either or thinkers here. It's like we approach something like God's sovereignty and we say, well, either he's completely sovereign or he's not. It's either or, right? Uh, the Holy Spirit, right? Being filled with the Holy Spirit. You're either filled with the Holy Spirit or you're not. And we don't leave room for both and, which is an Eastern way of thinking about things. And there's just a few examples about how we, we hear things, we process, we think theologically, we think about God in a way uh, that, is, that is either or. Um, I could continue going. It's kind of like the way that computer works as it approaches data. It's this or that. It's the way um, tests showed up in our classroom. It's either true or false. But what about those questions or those statements that kind of look like, right, could be true and false, right, both and, there's another way that we, as Western thinkers, thinkers, organize information that affects the way we approach the scriptures and therefore the way we see God. We think in categories. Uh, we are Tupperware thinkers, right? So when we're having a conversation about evangelism, we have a, an evangelism Tupperware, and it has these great evangelistic verses in here and all of our evangelistic training, right? And we get this mental picture of knocking on a door that belongs in the Tupperware box, right? But then when we think about mission, that's a different Tupperware, right? We pull that off and we see images of a hut in Africa. We think about third world countries. We think about the homeless. We think about mission trips, right? And that's the Tupperware box. And then we think about discipleship. We put that one up. We pull off the discipleship Tupperware. We open it up and we think of classrooms and studying and small groups and reading the scripture together and maybe a conversation at Starbucks. And we call that discipleship. And so we put that in the box and slip it back on the shelf. You could go on and on, right? Worship pull it off and we hear songs, woo, right? KLTY just starts ringing in the air as we pull off the Tupperware lid and we put it back on the shelf and, right? Which conversation do we need to have? Which plays out then in the way we live life out there, right? So if we're in evangelistic mode and that mindset and we're expecting it to happen, you ever been on a mission trip and noticed how easy it is to share your faith on a mission trip? Why? Because you're expecting that to happen. You've got that box off the shelf, right? But, but 
take it to a different context. Now you're eating dinner in a busy restaurant. The kids are all over the place, frustrated, and, and you're, you're at your wit's end. I just can't wait to get these kids home and put them in bed. I don't care how good the food tastes. Just get it here quickly. And all of a sudden, you realize that your waiter or waitress maybe is having a rough day. Well, I don't have my evangelistic box open right now, right? I have my parenting box open, and I don't have room for you in this equation. So we don't, we don't then proceed and ask, hey, how, how can I pray for you or what's going on in your day? And, and we, we compartmentalize, don't we? in the church. You see this in the way churches organize themselves. Mission department, evangelistic area, discipleship, worship, and we see these silos or compartments around the church and the way the church is organized. Well, so, so here's, here's the problem. That's not, how the, that's not how your Bible was written. God isn't an either or God in some scenarios. He's a both and God. He's completely sovereign, right? And at the same time, we're responsible for making decisions. Both are true. Not either or, right? The Holy Spirit is sealing our lives for all eternity. At the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit is in us, right? Moving in us. At times, it's more obvious than others, right? It's not an either or, it's, it's a both and. And so today, as we talk about two very important pieces of the theological puzzle, what we're gonna see is that they're, they're interwoven to one another, okay? So today, we're gonna talk about suffering, and we're going to talk about the mission of Jesus and what we've been called to do. And you see, those are typically two different Tupperwares. When we think of it, we think of suffering, we think of hardships and woe is me and what is happening to me. And this is, uh, right? Maybe on some level you're thinking, hope God uses this for my good. But we disconnect that from the mission box. And so what Paul's going to do in Ephesians 3 is he writes this beautiful chapter. In the backdrop of everything that he's, he's saying is his own suffering. He begins in verse 1 by saying, I, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus, right? So the backdrop for what he's gonna say is his own imprisonment. I mean, he's in chains in a cold dungeon, right? A, a nasty, filthy, bacteria-infested place, sickness, dampness, right? So he's writing that, writing this letter from that, that idea or that concept or that backdrop. Now, at this particular place, he's probably in prison in a house, so don't go there but still imprisoned, right? And so his own suffering is the backdrop for the letter. But then he's gonna begin to shift in the letter to talk about our circumstances, our situation, that the hope that he has might be our hope and his power to endure suffering might be our power to endure suffering. And he's gonna connect the mission with our persecution and suffering. All right, hopefully that was enough talking to get you to Ephesians 3. You ready to go? Uh, let's start in verse seven. I'm gonna read the rest of chapter three and then, uh, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Starting in verse seven, of this gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, 
which is your glory. And then he prays, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. And then this often quoted very famous verse, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And the church said, amen. amen. Now, what a beautiful passage of scripture. My prayer is that I don't mess it up. Now, Paul begins in verse seven with these words of this gospel. So he just spent the first six verses of this chapter explaining the mystery of the gospel. This was last week, okay? And so the mystery of the gospel is this. First, that the Gentiles are co-heirs, which means this. Those who don't look like God's people are adopted in, not just as right inhabitants in the kingdom, but they're actually adopted into God's family. God takes those who don't look like his children and makes them his children. It's the first part of this mysterious gospel. The second part is that we're united into one body. That as you and I find ourselves at the cross, we find ourselves united together. And every reason for hostility, whether it be uh, an, an ethnical division, a racial tension, a socioeconomic barrier, even the fights and struggles I have with my own wife, all that hostility, all the reasons I have to be divided with people is killed on the cross. And we've been united to one body. There's some good marital advice right there. Third thing was what? That we're also partakers or partners in this gospel. And Paul would say to us, in the same crazy way that God took a Christian killer and now made him apostle in the church, he's inviting you in to partner with him in the gospel. What God has done to you, he wants to do through you. Grace is not static or stagnant. It doesn't land on you and stay put. Grace is like the restless kid who, who can't quit moving. It wants to move through you in every conversation. It's trying to get out. And that is the mystery of the gospel. Now, one of the things that helps me understand, especially the New Testament as a Western thinker, have you ever noticed how the Bible feels like a bunch of run-on sentences? Especially particular authors, like the gospel of Mark is like, like the first two or three chapters, like one run-on sentence. You get to where you're almost done, you're like, okay, I got it, and then the next word is and, and you're like, oh. And you keep reading, it's like, and, 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 and. It's a, it's a different way of thinking about things, right? We like periods. We like breaks from thought. We like to compartmentalize, and the, the, the scriptures don't speak to us that way. With Paul's writing in particular, something I've learned to do as I'm reading is before I ever start, Paul, what's your main point? Because as Paul writes, what happens, if you've met those people, maybe you are one of these people, and if you are... Um, it's irritating when you tell stories. Have you ever met those people who start telling a story and then they realize they need to tell another story or maybe they don't need to, to finish this story and then before you know it, you're like on the fourth story and you forgot what the main story is? Okay, that's how Paul writes, okay? So he'll be writing along and then he'll say a word or write a word and then he'll stop to explain that word and then all of a sudden, 
Like we're supposed to know this. He'll pick that sentence back up again and start writing, okay? I'll show you an example. That might help you as you read the Bible. So as Paul's writing in verse seven, he begins with these words, of this gospel, the first six verses, I was made a minister. Now that's, a, that's an important phrase. I was made a minister. And then he's gonna stop. He's gonna say, now I need to explain to you what I mean by made. Reminds me of Rich Mullins' song. If you know who Rich Mullins was, fantastic songwriter. Um, <laughs> I did not make it, talking about the gospel, but it is making me. What an interesting phrase. So Paul stops and he I want you to understand what I mean by made. I didn't sign up for this. I didn't go to high school and college to become this. God made me a minister. He qualifies it with these words. Here's what I mean by made. According to the gift of God's grace, the fact that I'm a minister is a gift of God's grace to me which was given me by the working of his power. Two things, the fact that I'm a minister for Jesus means that God gave that to me as a gift of grace and any working you see in my life is his power working in me, on me, and through me. See how he's qualifying that one word? Verse eight is still explaining that word made me. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints. So when you hear me say, God made me, it's not because I rose up as a, as a who's who among potential you know, apostles. I was the least of the saints and God made me. Though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given. You see how he's explaining that one word? Then he picks up the sentence again, verse nine. So he's saying, of this gospel, I was made a minister. Verse nine, two, preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Then he goes on, and to bring, this is, that was the end of eight, so nine, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. That's the sentence. Of this gospel, I was made a minister to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and to bring to light for everyone these unsearchable riches that we have in Christ. Okay, that's his sentence. Then he's gonna say something else that is, that is incredibly powerful that I hope we, we rest on. So he says that this mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, just explaining the mystery, what he means by that. Look at verse 10. So that through the church. So this chapter, and really the whole letter, has a backdrop of Paul's imprisonment, even his sufferings, but he's not primarily writing to, to, uh, to invite people into a pity party or to overemphasize his sufferings. He's just laying that as a backdrop to, to transition into talking to who? the church, that somehow there's a connection between what his sufferings are and what the church is going through. Now, it's not um, super clear by reading the letter to the church in Ephesus. It's, it's in there, but it's not super clear. All the suffering and persecution that they're facing as a, as, as a body of Christians in Ephesus. And so if we go back and we read Acts, where Paul's there in Ephesus, he describes some of the things going on. It started as a church of 12 men, a real small church. And Ephesus being a hot, hotbed for Greek uh, myth, mythological worship, okay? There's an, there was a really big temple uh, there in Ephesus where people would travel a long ways to come and to worship the Greek gods. Not only that, the commerce of Ephesus was primarily built on that worship. All along the road and the path from the Colosseum to the temple were merchants who sold trinkets and idols and things to assist you in your worship. There were also things you could pick up as souvenirs on your way out to remind you of the experience you just had or the 
offering you just made. You could buy these things made out of silver, bronze, gold, wood, iron. And, and so you had these merchants, these woodsmiths and, uh, and, and masons and, and metal uh, working people. What are they called? Blacksmiths and silversmiths and goldsmiths. And, and so it was, it was a part of the commerce. Well, if you read like Acts uh, 19 into 20 and you read about the gospel coming to Ephesus, um, one of the things is that there was a conversion of magicians and cult members uh, to, the, to the way, to the way of Jesus. And it caused such a, an uproar in the city that the merchants caused a riot. So we know from the unfolding of the story that, that there was persecution, right? I mean, the, the, the merchants themselves were willing to start a riot over this gospel movement in Ephesus. And so he's writing to people he hasn't seen in a while, knowing their circumstances are hard, knowing that they are standing for the gospel in the midst of a culture of persecution, being left out, being made fun of, right? Being tripped and pushed down, being left, you know, left out of, probably left hungry. Their own family members were beginning to turn on them and not invite them anymore or take care of their needs. And so the church was left in an atmosphere of turmoil and, and struggle. Now, Paul, when he talks about their struggle, he's primarily gonna talk about it in spiritual terms as we'll see in just a minute. As a matter of fact, at the end of the book, he's gonna say, it's not against flesh and blood. It's not these people that you're battling with, but you rest assured, you are in a battle. And so he's writing to a persecuted church. Now, as he writes to them and he shifts his conversation to the church, now he's going to say, so that the church, and really what he's saying, so this is your purpose. This is why you exist on the earth right now. So now our ears are perked and we're listening. And he says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's a beautiful verse of scripture. It's C.S. Lewis style beautiful. Um, the word manifold here, I, I, I struggle with that word in English. We don't use that a lot unless we're talking about engines. Um, it's, it really like literally translates multicolored or multi-sided or multifaceted. Okay, so like that's what a manifold is. It has multiple ports to it. It's, the image I got this week as I was, was studying this, this word in Greek is this image of like a, a beautifully shaped diamond. You, it has so many sides to it. You can't, right? It has all these facets and sides to it. And there's beautiful colors coming out of it as you turn it like a prism. This is how God's wisdom is described. But his main point isn't to describe the wisdom of God. He just drops that adjective there to say the manifold wisdom of God, this beautiful, multifaceted, multicolored, beautiful wisdom of God. The point is this though. It's the church's responsibility to take that wisdom to the dark world. That's his point. The... Um, the words that come out of this, anytime you see, okay, so when we hear the word heaven in our, in our current thinking, we automatically go to angels and trumpets and butterflies and lilies and rainbows and blue skies and birds singing, right? Okay, so the word heaven shows up here, but Paul isn't at all talking about puppies and butterflies. Matter of fact, if you look at the words he uses in Ephesians 3 and how he uses them in the rest of his letter, he wants us to think of dark things, evil Evil powers, look at what he says. So, the church is to make known the manifold wisdom of God to who? So he goes on to say, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Now, this isn't the only place in this letter he uses those words. 
The first time they appear is in Ephesians 2 when he talks about how we used to walk as dead men and sons of disobedience. If you remember that from a few weeks ago, here it is, Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince. It's the same word as ruler. It just gets translated prince here because in this particular passage, we believe he's talking specifically about the devil himself, but it's the same word against the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So he says that early in the letter, when he uses the word ruler, he's talking about the, the ruler of demonic forces, darkness, fallenness, brokenness. At the end of the letter in Ephesians 6, when he's talking about our battle as Christians, same words, verse 11, he says, put on the armor of God, that you may be able to stand against, your, against the schemes of the devil. I want you to know who he's talking about. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. You, you kind of begin to feel where he's calling the, the Ephesians to attention. Listen, your struggle out there is not with the people who are causing the riot. There's a driving force of darkness behind them and that's where the battle is. Your battle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, right? No room for puppies and butterflies there. That's like darkness. Now, when we, when we think about then the powerful things that Jesus taught us that the gospel writers record, I, I hear this and I think immediately about Sermon on the Mount right after the Beatitudes, the teaching on, a, on what it means to be blessed, uh, right after that, Jesus shifts into salt and light. Now listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5. He says, you are the light of the world. It's a pretty popular passage, right? We hear this, we tend to think, I am the light of the world. So we sing songs like, this the light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. We then break it down into a rap. Puka, puka, puka. This the light of mine, I'm a horrible rapper. But we tend to think what? It's about me. I'm the light of the world. It's not what Jesus is saying. The you in this passage is plural. Who's he talking to? The church is the light of the world. You collectively are the light of the world. Now, as a ambassador of Christ, a representative of the church, right? I go out into the world to be a light. But the idea is that the saints would collect themselves in a local church and be a light in the world, look at how he describes our likeness in the community around us. This is the rest of his, this part of his sermon. You collectively, it's you all are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your, it's, it's plural again, light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The church is to be the city on the hill, the place, the place where the saints collect, to be together a bright light, a beacon of hope to the darkness out there. That when people drive by, I'm not just talking about we need to put lights on our building and lights on our signs, but when people drive by the church, they would say, there's hope in that place. I've run into people from that church. I've been ministered to by people of that church. I've witnessed these people out in the community. There's hope in that place. 
There's light in that place. A city on a hill is what this church is to be in this community. Now, um, the first time that Jesus actually teaches about the church and uses the word is in a conversation between him and the disciples. And he approaches the disciples and says, who does the world say that I am? It's Matthew 16. The disciples respond with a few answers. Some say a prophet, some say Elijah, some say, some say John the Baptist. And he shifts it now and says what? But who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, well, you're right. You didn't come up with that on your own, Peter. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my father revealed that to you. And then he says something remarkable about the church. Listen to this. This is Matthew 16, eight, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, this beautiful proclamation you just made, Peter, on this rock, I will build my what? Church. Now look at this. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus launches the church in the midst of a spiritual battle. Bless you. You and I walking on earth as Christ's followers are walking in a spiritual battle. And whatever phrase you want to use, the devil, the cosmic powers, the heavenly places, the rulers, the authorities, right? Behind Every situation of reality is a spiritual battle. The church's job, right, in the, in the community is what? To stand up and press back against the darkness and say there is safety in here, in this community, not this building, in this community. To those who are broken and weary, right, that you can find rest here in this community to, to say, you know what? Take a break, sit down and catch your breath. The church steps up and presses back against the darkness. Um, I'm gonna share a little bit of my own journey and I'm gonna be as brief as I can because it's not really, my, it's not really, anyway, it doesn't matter. My story's not that interesting. About, um, it's been 17 years now, I was in a downward spiral of depression. And I know some of you know exactly what that means. Some of you are there right now. Others of you haven't walked through this and you have, you have no idea experientially what I'm talking about. It was about a three-year span for me. It was about a year worth of decisions and responses and just me muddying up my life that led to it. And then it was about a year of just walking what, in what felt like darkness. And then it was about a year of fighting and struggling and allowing the saints of the church to pray over me and walk with me and counsel me and correct me and rebuke me, walking my way out of it. But in the midst of that darkness, it got so ugly that um, my family, my mom was trying anything she could to help me get out of it. Um, I, I say this jokingly now, I'll never forget the conversation in her little red Toyota Corolla driving up Live Oak Lane. We had gone out to lunch and she had been prodding, you know how moms do, the whole time, just poking and prodding, what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong? Or, are you doing okay financially? You got what you need and all this. And I was, yeah, I'm good, I'm good. And so finally she just got frustrated and she's like, Jason, what is so bad right now for you, so wrong that you can't get out of this? And then she said, did you kill somebody? And if you know my mom, she's, I mean, she was really like, she's like, here we go. I'm going to find out what's wrong. Did you kill somebody? And, uh, and, and which that was indicative of, of the darkness that she was seeing in my life. She could tell something was wrong. All my friends could, right? 
Now, what happened from there is that as I began to pursue help, I actually started going the wrong way and darkness got worse before it got better. But in doing that, some beautiful things were shown to me. One, the primary thing is this. So my mom said, well, so I shared with her. No, mom, here's what's going on. I feel like junk. I can't get my head off the pillow. I don't feel like I have any reason to live. Well, why do you feel that way? I tracked through a list of stories and things. I was like, maybe this is it. I don't know, but I just can't fix it. I can't get out of it. And so she's like, well, will you try some counseling, some uh, inpatient help? And so I went, I, went, I went towards the secular world first, okay? It wasn't biblical-based counseling. It was all secular. And, and as soon as I did, I knew I was, on the, I was doing the wrong thing because the darkness got darker. Well-meaning people, right? Well-meaning practices were trying to help me, but the problem was I was moving away from the light and I felt it quickly. Matter of fact, by the third day in, it was a full week away. Um, by the third day in, I was so freaked out by not having my community that I went and surprised um, Jason Lewis. Um, I was kind of breaking rules. I left and he was working at Papado's as a waiter. And Jason and I, uh, we go way back. We were good friends. And I just had to be around somebody who had light in them. I never forget walking into Papado's, freaked out from a week of just trying to get counseling and figure things out. And I just knew I needed to be close to somebody who loved me, close to somebody who knew Jesus, who had light in him and, I, and surprised him. And he was waiting and like, you know, kind of startled him, but he didn't know where I was. He was missing me. And like, that was one of the warmest moments of that whole week. And really a turning point in, in my journey through that depression and darkness. And I can't tell you one thing he said to me one verse he quoted to me. I just know the look on his face when he saw me. He said, I had no idea where you were. He gave me a hug and we sat and chat, chatted. I learned so much about the role of the church in that experience when I realized that all the things I was talking about in therapy were things I was supposed to be wrestling through in the context of the church. Now, I believe what Paul is saying to the church, like he's speaking to people who are in that, that struggle and that battle. And he's using these phrases to describe what's going on. Darkness, present darkness, these things you're struggling with, these cosmic powers. Like I know where you're at, but here's what you need to understand. Your job as the church is to stand up against the darkness and press back and offer safe harbor for those who are broken and weary and need rest. Those who are depressed, and, and the church needs to be a place where people can come and be broken, right? And just be broken without us rushing in to fix it immediately. This needs to be a place for people to come in and take a deep breath and go, I'm worn out. I need a place just to be for a minute. Now, um, Paul's gonna go on. And so... It, we're gonna see clearly that he has their suffering and their darkness on his mind as he shifts. So he says, this is your job, church, to, to, to make the manifold wisdom of God known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, the spiritual battle, verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Anytime you hear Paul say this was according to God's purpose or his plan, what he wants you to feel and understand is God's got this, okay? He doesn't fully explain everything, but in the midst of a storm, you know God's over the storm, he reminds, this is God's unfolding plan for it to happen this way. When he saw the gospel going to Ephesus, he also saw the persecution that was gonna take place. God's got this. Then in verse 12, he says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. 
And I, what I feel from Paul in this is he's, he's already laid the backdrop of his own suffering, but also his own boldness and saying the same boldness that I have for the gospel in the midst of my suffering, you have, we have. You have access to the same boldness. Now, the, the title for um, the sermon today um, is um, Boldness in the Gospel. And I, I, I picked that title about an hour before church started today, been wrestling through it all week. And, it, and it was that title, the, 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 the struggle for me was that title was up against boldness for the gospel. I feel from Paul calling the church to a boldness for the gospel here, but there's something deeper going on. And I think that Paul would say, if all we do is find boldness for the gospel without having a boldness that's rooted in the gospel, we'll get it wrong out there. And we'll become the guy on the corner with a bullhorn trying to pick a fight, Right? instead of trying to take the good news and the hope we have in Christ to a fallen, broken, and dark world, okay? Now, what I don't mean by that is that every person sharing the gospel in downtown Fort Worth is doing it wrong, but you know what I'm talking about, right? The guy who has a bullhorn in one hand and seems to have a finger in everybody's chest and the tone of his voice is, I'm out here to pick a fight. Okay, that's boldness, right? And that's boldness, you might say, for the gospel, but it's not boldness rooted in the gospel, Right? Those who are bold in the gospel say things like, he made me a minister. It was his gift of grace that, that gave me this beautiful message. It was his power that changed me from this to that and set my course. I don't want to pick a fight. I want to share with you the hope I have that he might make you, <laughs> right? And so... Paul isn't just talking about a sense of boldness and arrogance or a boldness that leads to arrogance. And here's how I know that because he follows it up with the word confidence. And the word that, that trans, is translating confidence here, we'll see him explain it to the Corinthian church in a second. But let me just give you an illustration. It's the kind of confidence you have when you're with the right person. It's not a confidence in yourself. It's a confidence that you have when you're with the right person. So it's the same it's a similar confidence to what I see in my children where we walk into an intimidating environment and they're kind of, they're, they're freaked out until I step up next to them. And now all of a sudden they're confident. That confidence is rooted in what? Who they're with, not themselves. You follow me, parents? You've seen that? Okay. That's the same idea here. Not a sense of arrogance and confidence and boldness that this is all about me, but a sense of like sure, concrete, strong confidence because of who we're with. In, the, in Paul's letter to the, the Corinthian church, this is 2 Corinthians 3, he explains our confidence. Listen to how he explains it, starting in verse 4. He says, such is the confidence, it's the same word he's writing in Ephesians, such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. So he just starts with, this comes through Christ. It's about who we're with. Not that we have, or not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from who? God. It's about whose we are and who we're with. Verse six, who has made us, there's that word again, sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. You see the connection? Paul's thinking God made me a minister of the gospel and I'm confident in this and you guys are feeling my confidence, but my confidence is rooted in who I'm with. who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Verse 13, here we go. So I ask you, 
and just take everything we've said so far in the midst of your persecution, your suffering, your hardship, not fitting in, not being included in your family anymore, all the things you're experiencing right now, I ask you not to what? Lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. And now Paul's gonna connect his suffering with their hardship and suffering as well. Um, one of my favorite passages of scriptures, I found it in the midst of that dark time of my own journey, that time, that, 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 those three years of just struggle and fighting and, and, and listen, well-meaning people would throw these beautiful Bible verses at me. I would just slap them down. Something about rising up like wings of eagles. I'm like, I just don't wanna hear that mess. Like, I, if I see an eagle, I'm gonna shoot it. Like, don't throw the happy-go-lucky verses at me. I need to hear God's word speak to me about the struggle and the darkness I'm walking through. And I discovered something Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter four. Praise God for God's revelation through an honest man. Paul in, in 2 Corinthians four says this. It's the word we, he's talking about us, the church. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Finally, somebody describe what I'm going through. I can feel the weight of the world right now pressing against me, but for some reason I won't die. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. In this passage, when he talks about death, he's, he's talking about suffering and persecution. When he talks about life, he's talking about the gospel going out and the mission that the church has, okay? He's gonna say it again. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. That's how he understands suffering. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh, verse 12. So death is at work in us, suffering, hardship, persecution, but life in you. Verse 15, look at what he says. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, he just described the mission, didn't he? Jesus said, take the gospel, make disciples of all nations, let grace go forward from person to person. As grace does that, as the mission goes forward, right? The kingdom advances more and more people. It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not what? Lose heart in our suffering. Why? Because my suffering and my hardship is connected to the mission that I'm on. They're not two separate Tupperware compartments. He goes on. Though the outer self is wasting away, that's what suffering is doing to me right now. My outer self is wasting away. The inner self is being renewed day by day. Man, I need there was plenty of tangible evidence that the outer self was wasting away. I needed somebody to say, yes, but that's not the full story. There's something alive in you that's growing. For this, look at what Paul says. Is if anybody in the Bible is qualified to make fun of suffering, Paul is. And I don't, he's not making fun of it, but he's definitely making light of it because he uses the word light. This light momentary affliction. Does he, is he saying that suffering doesn't hurt? Is he saying that Depression isn't dark. What is he doing? He's comparing our experiences right now on earth to eternal glory and compared, right? Let him finish. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're always shifting and changing. Green, green grass and blue skies today or yesterday, right? And what, what about today? That's just an illustration of life out there, isn't it? You're on top of your game. You're going up the ladder. You're up for a promotion and then boom, pink slip. Right? Isn't that how the world works? It's transient. It's always shifting and changing. Circumstances are unfolding. Here's what he's calling Christians to do. For the things that are seen are transient. Quit focusing on those things, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The inner self. Now he's gonna bring up the inner self back in Ephesians. So now we understand what he's talking about. Tell you what, before we go on, because we're gonna pick up the prayer now, he's gonna pray for us. Just a few examples. Um, Paul's writing to a young pastor, Timothy, in First and Second Timothy, and he addresses suffering to Timothy and persecution. And here's what he says to young pastor uh, Timothy. You have followed my teaching, Timothy, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, all good stuff, right? The sentence isn't over. Look at verse 11. My persecutions and suffering that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ, Jesus will be what? Persecuted. There will be opposition. The church is in a battle zone. He explains why. Here's why, verse 13, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, you still are living in a broken and fallen world. It's dark out there. It's dark. Um, I love at our church right now that we're having conversations like this. Parents coming to the, to the mission team and saying, um, how old do my kids need to be to go on the mission trip? Um, I saw this when we got back from the Philippines. Some of you who went, you, you've been approached, right? Like, I really want my kids to experience that, but there's a hesitation because of the potential danger. And so we're, we're asking that question. Now, I don't have the answer for you, but I love that we're having to ask that question. Because why? The church is awakening to realize that, that the gospel is not safe and fun for the whole family. It's, it's dangerous out there that we send our kids into a dark world every day, most of us, right? And so when, when your child is maybe praying over their lunch because that's what they think is the right thing to do because you're teaching that at home and somebody makes fun of them, the battle isn't against flesh and blood. There's a power of darkness behind that, right? That's a, that's a version of persecution, and you go on down the trail through junior high and high school and college, and right? And then they're going to be in the work world, which is where most of us exist. And there is a constant reminder of the spiritual battle that is after us. The darkness is after us out there. So Paul just clearly says to Timothy, right? Expect to be persecuted if you're going to live for Jesus. Well, wait a second. That's a little bit different from some of the Right? Some of the ways we get presented the gospel. So we go back to the Beatitudes, the blessed life. Let's go back there. That was a lot more fun, right? Puppies and butterflies and blue skies and green grass. How does Jesus end the Beatitudes? Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. Where does he end? This is chapter five of Matthew, verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, not for no reason, on my account, 
right? He's not saying blessed is any kind of persecution and suffering. He's saying blessed are you when you're persecuted because you're living your life on the mission. That's what he said. Rejoice and be glad. What? Paul says the same thing in Romans 5. James says it in James 1. Rejoice in your sufferings. Jesus says it first. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This isn't just your story. It's my story. Think about how Jesus invited the um, the disciples to follow him in Luke 9. He had just said, hey guys, I'm getting ready to go to Jerusalem and be killed. It's gonna be ugly and brutal. Right after that, he says what? If anybody's gonna come after me, if anyone would come after me, this is Luke 9, 23, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That sounds like a battle call to me. Jesus is saying, if you're gonna be following me, I'm, right, I'm waging war against the darkness. Now I win, but if you're with me and you're mine, right? We're, we're gonna be at war here on the earth. John 15, Jesus is speaking to the Father and praying for us and, and talking to God, his Father, and he says this, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. How painful is it, parents, to see your children hated for their stance for Jesus? And Jesus would say to you, parents, listen, my Father can relate. Before they hated your children, they hated his child. If you're gonna be with me, the darkness is gonna hate us. It's gonna hate us. You should read the rest of that. It's beautiful, by the way. He explains that um, the reason is because you belong to me in the world. Think about, um, you remember the conversation that um, happened between uh, the Apostle Paul, that was the sons of Sceva, the seven Jewish boys who were trying to cast out demons in the book of Acts. Um, we talked about this several weeks back. And so there was a demon-possessed man and the seven sons of Sceva, these Jewish boys were trying to cast out demons because they had watched the Christians do it. And the demon responds with, Jesus I know and Paul I've heard of, but I have no idea who you jokers are. The point was, these people are trying to cast out demons and they didn't know Jesus. But there's a secondary point here is this. You are known by name. You are known by name in the spiritual battle. Did you know that? Um, this is one of the beautiful things that comes out of um, the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis, that there is a specific spiritual attack on your life and your family. You are known by name if you're in Christ to the cosmic powers, the rulers and authorities of the heavenly places, to the, to the devil himself. It's a battle. So Paul says, for this reason, I now bow my knees. You get it now? For this reason, I'm praying for you. Verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Again, so you don't understand, like misunderstand. Are you talking about your dad, Paul, or my dad? Who are you talking about? He explains it. Does it help you understand Paul this way? He says a word and he jumps track. He's explaining that word. So he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And just so you don't mistake who that is, he's the one from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, we may, or he may, here's what he's praying for. He picks up the sentence again. Grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your what? Inner being. 
Same thing I wrote to the church in Corinth. The same thing that is building me up while I'm here in chains. The same thing that is birthing life in me in the midst of a, a situation that feels like death. I'm praying that in your inner being, the spirit of God would strengthen you. And he goes on, 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I love that phrase. We, we've gotta be cautious how we present gospel, the gospel to children. Um, when we say it's all about inviting Jesus into your heart. Now that's not wrong, but let's be cautious how we explain that because if we're not careful, we'll explain it like we're inviting Jesus over for dinner. At the end of dinner, he leaves, okay? The word here is dwell. The word Jesus uses in John 15 is abide, okay? It's this idea that when you invite him in, he's in. <laughs> in a good way, his grace invades every part of you, right? It's either all or nothing with him. He's not gonna forgive some of your sins and if you feel like it later, we'll get to the rest of them. It's all or nothing. And so when we present the gospel to our kids, we gotta be careful. Like Jesus is coming to live in you, like every day dwell in you. Every day speak to you and walk with you. Be your source of confidence in the dark world. So he says, I'm praying this for Christians that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Stay there, abide that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is, and I love this, this beautiful imagery that the goodness of God has no bottom to it. It has no sides to it. It's immeasurable. Look at what he says. That you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowing. What an oxymoron. He's calling the church to continue pursuing Jesus and keep their eyes focused on what, right? What is seemingly invisible, but what is eternal. In the midst of suffering and persecution and the storms that come your way, keep your eyes fixed on him as your anchor. So as I dig in my Bible and I walk through life experiences to know Jesus, I'll never get to the bottom of it as I study the goodness of God's grace in my life and I meditate on just how much it cost him and how much he's forgiven me as I dig, I'll never get to the bottom of that barrel. And the power that sustains me to walk through the dark world comes in the pursuit of that. As I dig in the word of God, God, show me once again, show me more deeply how good you are and how, you've, how, how rich you are in love. The more I pursue that, the more empowered I am to be a part of the church that stands up against the darkness. It's, it's, that, it's that beautiful scene from uh, the Lord of the Rings, uh, the movie with Gandalf. And, and I, my, my Gandalf impersonation is horrible. Um, do you know what I'm talking about? You don't, okay. The scene, <laughs> I'm gonna misquote it anyway. Well, the scene where he like, like uh, anyway, he's basically standing there saying, you shall not pass. It's that scene, okay. You shall not pass. There, I did it. Right, standing with authority to say, you shall come no further to the darkness. That's what Jesus does on our behalf. And as the church, we, we gather around him as he stands his, his hands out to the darkness and said, you shall not pass. There is safety in my church. There is healing in my church. There's room for brokenness in my church. You shall not pass. The gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. And then he ends with this um, oftentimes quoted 
verse of scripture that now we can see it in context. Verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. So after going through the list of things he was praying for, he admits, I didn't think of everything, but to him who can actually do more than I could ever think of, to him. According to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. I'm gonna say two things and we're gonna watch a testimony, listen to a testimony that I would say displays a boldness not for the gospel, but a boldness rooted in the gospel. Here's what I want you to hear. When Paul talks about our boldness and confidence, he's not calling us to go out there and pick a fight. The fight has already been picked. Jesus picked it. He's the one who put his head on the, his foot, his heel on the serpent, and he picked the fight. You and me, Satan, let's go. This is the rest of your New Testament. It's the book of Revelation. He wins. But he has said to all of us who would follow him, the safe place is with me. It's not going to feel safe because as you follow me, darkness is going to press up against you. But the safe harbor, the place of safety is with me. In me, you'll find rest. In me, you'll find peace. In me, you'll find strength. In me, you'll find hope in the midst of your depression. It's here. And he's the one who's picked the fight. So it's different to be bold for the gospel as opposed to being bold in the gospel because a boldness in the gospel is rooted in humility. A boldness in the gospel knows that the sufficiency we have is because of whose we are. So I don't think a boldness for the gospel should be going out there trying to pick a fight and prove people wrong, but I think we should be going out there nonetheless, quick to give an account, quick to share our testimony, quick to, to draw the conversation to grace, Quick to say, there's a hope. I understand where you're at is really hard and dark. Let me share with you, let me share with you a light of hope. It's found in the measurable grace of Jesus. To be a light, a piece of the light in a dark and fallen world. All right. Persecution and the mission are not two separate things. Being on the mission for Jesus brings about persecution, but it also gives purpose to the persecution that grace is being extended to from person to person, right? Here we go. I'll tell you what, let me pray for us and we're gonna listen to Dennis's testimony. And I want you to be prepared for God to speak to you through um, a beautiful proclamation of God's goodness in the midst of darkness. Um, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, what we want you to, what we want you to hear is this. Please hear me, okay? Um, we wanna be honest about what it means to follow Jesus. I've been hearing a lot about persecution and hardship. It sounds like you're trying to talk me out of becoming a Christian. Not at all. Just want to follow the teachings of Jesus and be honest with you. But here's what I would follow that up with. And I believe Paul would, want, would, would, would want, follow, want to follow up every sentence in Scripture with this. He's worth it. Right? Parents, as you struggle to know what boundaries to set for your children, as you begin to empower them to be on mission for Jesus, it has to boil down to that for you. And that's not a guilt statement. That's just that's where you need to land. Okay? He is worth it. His immeasurable goodness is worth it. That makes us look at our suffering and call them momentary and light afflictions. That's how good he is. And so what I'm gonna pray is if you're here today and you are not a Christian, that you would come all in today. That you would trust Jesus and Jesus alone as your savior, your Lord, your victory over the darkness out there. And that you would leave here today alive and forgiven and free.